I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Precipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. On today's show, I talk to Richard Maybe. He's the co-founder of contract automation platform Jura. Today's conversation is with Richard Maybe. He's one of the co-founders of Juro, the all-in-one contract automation platform that streamlines creation, execution, and management of legal contracts. Richard founded Juro in 2016 with his friend and technical co-founder, Pavel Kovalovich, when the two met in business school. As we will hear, Richard has a few degrees that run the gamut from music, philosophy, law, and business. Richard started his professional career at one of the UK's premier law firms, Freshfields, and while there, he was seconded to a client and it was during that gig when the seeds were sown for Juro. As Richard explains it, during his secondment, his team included a bunch of very smart people, but they spent a lot of time comparing versions of high-volume, low-risk contracts in Microsoft Word, and that was only one of the five pieces of software the company had to use to run an agreement through its life cycle. Richard, like many that have come before him on this show, said to himself, there's got to be a better way to do this, and he went on to found Juro. That's an end-to-end contract automation platform that helps teams with contracts from creation to execution and every stage in between. But Richard didn't launch Juro right away. Before he and his co-founder launched the company, he got an MBA and did a stint at LegalZoom. Your first post-high school degree was in music. Am I right? So I focused on music a lot at high school. This was my kind of first love. Uh, so I'm a pianist. Actually, kind of a lot of lawyers that I come across have musical backgrounds. But yeah, I certainly didn't start in law. Well, it's creativity, right? I mean, I think creativity really helps in legal practice because if you think about a new way to do a deal or what way to handle some piece of litigation and encounter an argument or something, I think that's great. What, do you still play the piano? I do, yeah. I, I do record some music still, sort of probably like my third or fourth profession, right? After being a <laughs> you know, lawyer, father, like startup founder. What kind of stuff do you record? What's your, what's your favorite type of music? So I've done a little bit of just kind of electronic music, so kind of modern stuff. I'm no great expert at it, but um, it's something I really enjoy. I actually play music just before our all-hands meeting. So we have, you know, 100 people in the oh, company, nice. and we, we have a little musical interlude. So I get every week to at least do some DJing before that meeting. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So you, you get a music degree. It doesn't sound like that, other than, you know, for yourself – you haven't used it really. I mean, you're not. You, were you ever in a band or trying to to make a career out of music? No, I mean, I, I was kind of in the category of someone who was musical, um, but uh, you know, the piano. I was never kind of technically excellent, so that's kind of what stopped me going down that path. And then, right. yeah, I just got interested in other things. So then you go further in school and you get a degree in philosophy and languages. Why that? I'm a pretty curious person. I mean, I, I just got interested in it and I kind of pursued it. I've never been, you know, one for planning you know far ahead in in my career and so yeah I, so I did study a little bit in France and lived in France and studied philosophy and then I kind of came to the end of that and decided to to do something else and that something else was was law school and ultimately getting right. to law so I got asked to keep keep these the same flow of questions <laughs> how do you make that jump I spent a little bit of time living in New York and you know I love the U.S. system for attorneys which is you know tend to go and get a get an undergrad degree, uh, go and do something else, and then go, go and do your JD with life experience. And I, I kind of did a version of that, right, which is, um, you know, I'd, I'd done an undergrad in something else. And I got interested in the law generally as a topic. 
And there's this path in the UK, which is you can basically do a very accelerated JD. So it's basically a JD in one year. It's very intense. It's not quite as much as a JD, but you can get this qualification. So yeah, I, I just decided to do that. And that was yeah the foundation for you know getting a proper job right um, at, at the end of it. And the proper job was with a premier law firm in the UK, Freshfields. You do M&A work. Did you do that from the start or was there kind of an apprenticeship where you were checking out different types of law? What was your trajectory within the firm? Exactly. So the kind of system in the UK is a, a kind of two-year rotation around the departments of the firm. So ended up doing six months in finance and six months in litigation uh, and then six months in corporate. And I can't even remember where I did the other six months, but corporate was what got me interested. And I think a few things struck me. Like one was, uh, it was actually kind of nice in these deals, learning a bit about companies. So I was the kind of uh, the, the geek who was reading the, the deck from in the investment banker saying why it was a good deal, right? Rather than just doing the legal documents. I really liked that. It was very fast paced and yeah, some super smart people to learn from with a strong work ethic. So yeah, landed in, in corporate and spent three years there. You just mentioned that in, in the UK, there's kind of a rotation. So you learn. And what I, I was reading an interview or maybe it was an article you wrote, and you mentioned that it was in the middle of the night and you're basically proofreading and you're like, this isn't law. So you went to <laughs> one of your more senior partners, a guy that's working 80 hours a week, and he said, hey, come in in the morning. I'm going to teach you some stuff. So I know in America, sometimes it's a struggle in law firms, especially bigger ones, maybe maybe not as much bigger ones, but across the board, training programs, like it was official training programs. And it's a struggle, especially now in this day and age with remote work, to train lawyers. And how was that at, at your firm? I have to say it was really good. I mean, I think it probably varies quite a bit between firms in the UK as well. But I think, um, you know, it's like at any job and, you know, now now running Juro, we have, this, have the same thing is you kind of got to go out there and find the people you're going to learn from. So there was a certain amount of like, you know, stuff you receive. So you can sit back, there's great training and structure. And there's also this kind of proactive, can you just like find a person who you like respect and like and get them to teach you some stuff? And I think... Yeah, I found uh, actually a couple of people like that. But, you know, one, as you say, would meet with me before work, right? So we'd sort of meet at like 8 a.m. And and we'd go through legal topics. And he taught me like one-on-one. It was this amazing kind of tutor. But it did take, you know, a bit of chutzpah to go out and say, look, teach me, right? Which, you know, we lawyers are often not so good at doing. So it worked out well. Which is interesting because in so many times when I've had interviews with in-house counsel and what they're looking for in hiring is it's they want curious people. They want curiosity. So as part of that, as you just kind of alluded to, lawyers don't sometimes like to admit when they don't know something. They'll go and learn it, but but you know, curiosity is part of that. You gotta learn. So you do this MA work and you get seconded to a corporation. I I assume you're doing similar kind of work, MA stuff at the secondment. Well, actually, it was very general, right? So the role I had going into that in-house legal team was just kind of, it was a pretty small team. And it was just like, do bits and pieces of everything, right? And one big part of that was commercial contracting. And obviously, I'd seen, you know, commercial type agreements, but this was the the general churn of there is a commercial agreement for maybe a vendor or something like that. Let's give it a quick review. Uh, let's find out what the points are and let's kind of send it back. And that, that was work I hadn't really done. I mean, most of the M&A work I was doing is these sort of like 200-page, you know, agreements, uh, you know, merger agreements, uh, which were super complex. And so a lot of that work that I observed was there's a certain amount of churn work, some like really complex work to do. And there's also like other work, which is sort of legal adjacent, right? It's kind of non, non-legal, which you don't get in a firm. And I found that work especially really, really fascinating. 
I kind of got the impression that the seeds for Juro were sown during the secondment because you see kind of this manual process and you think there's a better way of doing it. Am I wrong there? Is that what started to happen? That's exactly right. So for me, the problem I saw was there was a high volume of low complexity contracts being processed through the legal team, right? And you've got this bunch of folks who are just super smart, super curious, able to add a ton of value. And what actually is happening is people are spending a huge amount of time on their desktop comparing Microsoft Word versions. Right? That's sort of, you know, I just have huge amounts of time comparing V1 with V2, saving down as a PDF, sharing the red line over email. And kind of my analysis of the situation was essentially like the team was using multiple tools. So I counted five tools to take one contract through its life cycle. Right? So it was sort of starting out in Word, populating that pushing into email, redlining, saving as a PDF. Uh, At that point, we were actually signing by hand, right? But now we have DocuSign. But even with DocuSign, it's another tool. And then you've got tracking the contracts in a contract register in Excel, storing them in like box. And so the problem I saw was it shouldn't take five tools, none of which are actually designed really for contracting, to agree one contract. And that process work was... In just a huge part of the day. And all of these smart lawyers are sitting around going, you know, we want to actually do like the legal work or we want to do the strategic work. We don't want to be bogged down in process. And then you you go get an MBA. And then even before you, you launch Juro, you go work at LegalZoom. Yes. Did you go to LegalZoom to learn about the, the workings of a legal tech business because you always intended to launch your own company? Well, it probably wasn't as deliberate as that. I mean, I think I definitely saw the pain, but I think my feeling then was, I don't know how to solve this. Right? I, as I understood the problem space, I think quite clearly, but I had no experience in, in, in any, anything that would solve it with software. So I, I remember starting to teach myself how to code. I mean, you know, our engineers at Jury find this now laughable, right? But, you know, I'd never be allowed to commit code to our product today. We've got like, you know, 50 engineers, right? Just learning about, what coding was and how to do software development. And then, yeah, the actual reason I went to work for LegalZoom was it just sounded interesting and I was coming out of uh, you know, an MBA with some debt and I wanted to get a job. And it turned out to be like an awesome job where I learned all about you know, document automation and templating and things like that. And by the time I came out of it, I, I felt ready to go and start the company, which you know, I've now been running for six years. Right. And your co-founder, you're talking about you learned coding, but your co-founder, whom I think you met at law school, is a technical guy. He's got a background in computers. So I met him at B-School, actually. And yes, exactly. So he, he's a software engineer by background, Pavel. And you know, at business school, kind of unusual guys, right? So, so a lot of people are like management consultants, iBankers, but actually not so many lawyers at all. Uh, and certainly very few software engineers. We became great friends with the same class. And then when it came to starting the company, I knew we needed to have a partnership where we had deep technical knowledge also a lot of kind of business knowledge, knowledge to the customer. And then, yeah, we got together and, and co-founded the company. Was this decision made when you were still at LegalZoom? I think we'd started thinking about it. I mean, you know, we weren't working on it. I decided, you know, to make the company work. You'd really have to have a hard stop. So there was a, there was a big kind of taking this leap moment where I right. said, actually, you know, I'm going to stop my income for a while. Right. I didn't have any money. We're just going to work now intensively on the company. And in hindsight, that was something, you know, I think it was the right decision. I think I've never done, you know, moonlighting. You know, people make it work, but actually, I like to focus on the on the job at hand. Um, I learned a ton and then moved into something else. 
When we come back, Richard explains what Juro does, why customer experience is priority number one, and he also tells us about the community of fans and users the company built while growing the company. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my conversation with Richard Maybe of Juro in just a second. But if you go to tlpodcast.com, you can learn more about our guests, and you'll also find links to some of the stuff we talk about. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your pods. Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co or catch me on LinkedIn. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Richard Maybe. So our customers are in-house legal teams, right? And in-house legal teams, our pitch is very simple, which is uh, right now you're using five tools to agree on contracts. That is causing your team problems because you spend a ton of time on process work and not legal work. It's a problem for the business because the speed of getting contracts agreed is business critical, especially in revenue-facing documents. So Jira is an all-in-one contract automation platform. So basically what we do is we replace all of those five tools with one tool. And the benefit of it is twofold. One, business can grow faster because it can get contracts agreed faster. And two is your team can do much less process work and much more legal work. And this is the proposition, which again, has stayed kind of constant over these years, which we found you know, legal teams, especially as they you know, want to become business enablers and partners to the business, are finding as a good quick win to speed up processes, which otherwise would be pretty manual uh, and pretty painful. Jura, which I might add, means I promise in Latin, correct? Yeah. Correct, yeah. But Jiro itself, so you can start the contract in there. You can communicate internally about the contract, ask questions. You can send it to counter signatories within Jiro. You can escalate. You can set up workflows to escalate if, if, if something's coming back to you and you need you know higher level authority to agree to something, to approve the provision. And then ultimately... You also provide a repository, and it could sit on top of other repositories, right? Correct. And, and you know, people use Jira in different ways. But in that case, of what you mentioned, we have some customers will say all contracts are now coming into Juro. They're going through these workflows. They're going into our repository, whatever it may be. So, yeah, it is an end-to-end tool. I just listened to a podcast you were on, and you said Juro is basically like an API. And I really like that because I think it's very overlooked in legal. And it's how I'm starting, you know, I, I have an ALSP and that's how I'm starting to think about what is the future of my company. And I know we're services and not straight software, we're software and services, tech enabled. But again, I want to see us not dissimilar to Juro plugged in as an API. Like we plug into the existing systems of the customers we're helping. But an API is an application processing interface. So basically it's like Legos connecting apps together, but explain when you say Juro is basically an API, explain what you mean by that. So in the kind of legal, what gets called legal tech or law tech, right? Um, I, my particular opinion of it is you need tons of people involved. So some people kind of say, you know, software is eating well, we don't need lawyers, which is like a ridiculous thing. Some people say, you know, software is, you know, not, not going to have any impact. It Ultimately, it's going to be a partnership of both, right? It is, and, yes. And I, I, I think, um, you know, like, what, like APIs, right? So... Let's give you a worked example, right? 
you could, as a general counsel, say, I bought this new tool. You know, hey, hey, business folks, I bought this new tool. Here's your login. Go and log in. Go and create your contracts here, right? May work fine, but actually, like, people don't always like new tools, right? Like, let's say you're on the sales team of a company and you're creating contracts. You've still got to do stuff in contracts, non-legal stuff, right? But actually, like, the last thing you need is another tool. So with integrations and APIs, what you can say is, well, Juro interfaces with Salesforce, your CRM, right? So if you go into your salesforce.com instance, you click a button saying create contract, it's doing this thing in the background, calling our APIs, technical stuff. But it, like at the end of the day, it's just giving you exactly what you need based on the, the data within your CRM, right? So it'll populate the contract automatically, might change up the clauses depending on where your prospect is, stuff that happens under the hood. And I think this is cool because it's really about business enablement, right? So I think the most forward in-house lawyers, and we have a you know, community of in-house lawyers, like 800 in-house lawyers, and we talk to them all the time. And the most forward-looking are sort of saying, you know, how can we partner better with the business, right? And Juro can't solve all of that, right? There's tons of things you need to do. But one thing you can do is, well, you know, if you gave people contracts where they need them, right, in the tools right. in which Salesforce. they live every day. I mean, did you Salesforce. connect to Salesforse, right? Exactly. And, you know, they need to know much more than that, right? That's better enablement than having a new standalone tool. So I think this is where APIs can be interesting. I think to the point of like interfacing with different things, I think ultimately there's an ecosystem now building of different tools, not just tools, right? So LSPs, like you say, and, and these stakeholders, you know, being able to share the data securely between those providers in a seamless way, again, APIs can certainly make that happen. To that point, you know, I just saw there was a Twitter exchange with Zach Abramowitz, I don't know if you know him. He's been on the show. Yeah, he was covering another contract tool out there. They'd been an acquisition, and one of the things in this article that really struck me, and I, I agree with, he said that selling to lawyers, they like AI, but it's a harder sell to say that the AI is going to do everything versus they still want a human involved. And yes. it's easier to sell that together. To your point, and basically that's you know that's what you're doing at Juro. To those ends, I know that you don't really have templates, but people can upload templates. Yes. What's your interaction with AI and machine learning and kind of like when you get these contracts coming through, anticipating w whether the clause is cool or not? Not very much at the moment. I mean, a contract platforms, there are like so many out there now, right? I think one big mistake that a lot of companies made is trying to do a bit of everything, right? So they're trying to do contract creation. They try and do like contract right. review analysis. And, you know, you spread yourself pretty thinly. You can't really succeed at everything. I think Juro has a very specific niche, which is the thing that we're really known for is contract creation, right? So we have a browser native editor, uh, which is structured, uh, which allows for collaboration in real time on contracts. That's our big strength. And we also have, you know, other parts of the platform, which develop all the time. For us, one of the most interesting things about AI and legal is most of the applications are saying, you've got these PDFs filled with text and you don't know what the text says. Let's find out what it says using machine learning, right? Juro's proposition is very different, which is in the editor in Juro, it is already a structured data format. And I won't go too, too much into the kind of technical details of that, but it basically means you don't really need a AI to unpick those contracts because it's already stored in the system, what they say. We already have structured clause uh, you know, tagging. We already have fields with data. So we've not tackled that use case. I mean, it's not to say that we won't in the future. And I think there are some particularly interesting pre-signature AI use cases we may look at. But I think, you know, a lot of the time we're finding people who are just so, you know, really 
sort of ground zero of their contracting process. It's just Word, email, PDFs. Actually, they don't necessarily need complex analysis. They just need a really good collaboration and workflow tool. Uh, and that's really where we focus. And you keep saying, you keep pointing out that Juro's browser-based. And I, I may be overstating it slightly, but I swear I heard you say somewhere, maybe it's when you were pitching VCs for, for money yeah. that you're going to be a Microsoft word killer. You still stand by that. That's a tall order. I think you know it's, it's been really interesting. Like one of the the most interesting um, analogies I used to tell all the time was Figma, right? And I don't really tell that right. anymore because of the huge Adobe acquisition. It kind of sounds like I'm pitching to VC. And Figma, we should point out, is what yeah. developers use kind of to, to do wireframes and kind of plan their their software. Exactly, and and Figma had a journey where you know designers and developers were using Photoshop, Adobe Photoshop, to do that. It's files-based, right? So those files live on your desktop and you email them to people. And then providers came in like Sketch. We're doing kind of similar kind of thing, a little bit nicer. And really what Figma said is, actually, people now live in the browser. So you want to design in real time in a browser-based environment. You log in, and there you see the design, and there you collaborate and work on it. And that was very radical. A lot of people said, you will never have an impact against Photoshop, this giant piece of software. Now, in legal, like, Really, the root cause of the problem that we solve is that people are pushing around files, right? So you can build workflow for files like Microsoft Word and PDF, and that solves something, right? There's really good tools out there that do that. So you can push them through approval workflows, et cetera. I think like what's got us really curious about this space is um, pretty much no one says actually like Word is amazing for contracts. It's not designed for contracts. It's been around since 1983, right? So it's a 40-year-old piece of software. So the premise of like, well, why shouldn't lawyers have you know, the tools necessary to do their, their job better, right? You know, it's, you don't give a surgeon a spoon and say, do this operation, right? You give them a highly tuned scalpel designed for the, the operation. So that's the premise. Now, we're, very, we're realists about that, right? So we are also word compatible in that you can take Word documents, you can import them into Jura, you can export them into Jura as well. So you can, you can still work in that way. But again, you know, we're processing in the last kind of, couple of years, we're sort of processing six, 700,000 legal contracts in a format that isn't Microsoft Word. And this is a really interesting, like, bleeding edge of innovation and a very hard problem space to solve. But a lot of that traction is very forward-thinking legal teams saying, well, you know, for simple documents like NDAs, we don't need to do this in, like, PDF and Word. We can do this actually natively in the browser. You mentioned somewhere, I think it's an article I read, that you believe contracts are ultimately going to be code. And that's kind of what you're alluding to there, right? Right. Totally. I mean, you know, if you, if you think about what our editor is, it looks like a contract, like a Google Doc or a Word Doc. But you know, underneath that, it is just a page of code, right? So right. you have uh, a logic layer to it. You have fields within it, tags. Uh, you, know, you can literally view it in a code view. And that is an interesting thing, right? Which is certainly when I learned about coding, it reminded me a lot of contracts, Right, because when you're building commercial contracts, you know you've got the definitions up front. You've got a numbering system. You might right. have tables. There are dependencies in the code. You can create like kind of technical debt in the code where it all becomes pretty complex. It's very similar, and you know code is just a document, right, uh, with right. dependencies and tags. So envisaging a future where contracts could be code is also kind of exciting, right? So we talk about smart contracts and applications of blockchain. You know, it's just code. Right, self-executing right. code, that's what it is. So 
Juro is is well prepared to be like the the kind of agreement layer for that future. Um, but today we're conscious no one is really you know using that technology yet. So we're laser focused on enabling people to just solve these these simple contracts and make them a little bit more streamlined. You mentioned that you have a community of in-house lawyers, 800 strong. How did you build that community? So we just started writing. So, you know, about five years ago, I started blogging just on, our, on the Juro blog, uh, writing about in-house. No, nothing to do with our products, right? We just wrote about the lives of in-house counsel, uh, the problems they had. We then hired uh, Tom, who's still with us, who did an incredible job about building our content. And we wrote ebooks and books. You know, we wrote this book called What is Legal Operations? It sounds ridiculous now because everyone kind of knows what it is, but this was four years ago. I was like, what the, what, what the hell is this thing? And so that, that's how we built out that body of content. And then over time, we went to lots of kind of industry events. And a lot of the events we went to, you know, some were great, some not so great. And we started thinking, well, maybe we could host events. So we hosted meetups, really small meetups. And then after a while, we had so many people subscribing to the content that we said, well, why don't we build a Slack community? So we have this Slack group with you know, 800 people, I think, in it now. And we regularly host events um, and get our members to curate events. And they tend to be super specific, right? So they're not kind of, you know, what's the future of legal? They're like, um, I'm a technology lawyer having to no negotiate master services agreements. Let's talk about limitations of liability clauses, right? It tends to be like hyper-specific content. And the nice thing is, I think, you know, sometimes being in a small in-house legal team can be a lonely job, right? So it may, may be just you or maybe just a couple of folks. So that community is a great way to uh, for peers to kind of share, you know, what knowledge they can. Uh, obviously not confidential knowledge, but what knowledge they can. And also to mentor each other. I mean, we have this mentoring scheme now, which is done super well, where you know um, more experienced lawyers are mentoring you know first first time in house lawyers. So again, it's nothing to do with you know contract automation really, but um, just a, a way for us to share knowledge with the community. In this community, and also going back to you, it's everything's browser based. Meeting the business people where they work, so so it's seamless and can interact with Weagle. This is all kind of flows into one of Juro's main goals. And I think what you've, you've set out to do from the get-go is user experience, make it frictionless and as easy as possible for the user. Because as you pointed out, a lot of times legal tech is clunky and it, they, they expect users to learn that way of doing it rather than, as we talked about, becoming an API, fitting in the workflow. How do you keep user experience front and center as you are developing Jiro, as you're adding new new features? I think it's two things, right? Like the first thing is the team. So I think, you know, it's really hard in the early days. You know, you're an ex-lawyer founding a company. It's hard to attract the right skill sets in people. But, you know, we double down early on design. So we have, you know, a team of design, which is now probably six, seven people in design and growing all the time. Uh, I think maybe, maybe we're now at eight. So doubling down and saying, well, this is important and, and finding the people who can do this stuff. So, you know, having UX researchers, you know, user interface designers, and not just making do, right, with what we think is right, um, that you can make sort of company-wide investments there. I, I think the second thing is, you know, think a lot about customer centricity. No one says really that they're not customer centric. Not really. Right. But everyone makes the claim. And I think we did a lot of thinking at Juro as to like, well, what does it actually mean to be customer centric? Like, what practically does that mean? And I think for us, we did you know, some really concrete stuff. So we have a customer advisory board, right? The customer advisory board, I think it's five uh, general counsels of multi-billion dollar tech companies. And we spend time just like talking about the interface. 
So, you know, getting into really like nitty gritty details and listening to the customer. Um, we have massive feedback uh, databases. Uh, every single interaction with every single person in the, in the team is, is logged and clocked and crunched and analyzed. And also in the prioritization of decisions, you know, trying to make sure above all else, rather than just like monetize and grab money from customers, we try and make them successful with the product first. If we do that, then yeah, the company can grow very well because people are recommending the product and people are loving the product. People are generating you know, um, a, a large volume of contracts and getting success from it. So I think it, it's partly operational, but partly a mindset. Uh, and if you have that in the DNA of the company, everything's just it's just better. <laughs> it's just a little easier because everyone's proud of what they're building and customers are happy. You know, I saw you guys did a study with general counsel and one of the most important things that the general counsel reported and what they were working on, their their initiatives was enabling self-serve for their clients in the business. You know, how have you taken that insight and put it to work at Jiro? I think part of that is in the product, right? So we have this kind of value area we call self-serve contracts. And basically what it is, is the ability to set up templates, add fields and conditions in them, uh, and then to create uh, either an integrated uh, source for the data to be populating them or to use a simple contract questionnaire. So, you know, fill out the gaps and we'll spit out a contract. And the way in which in-house lawyers use that is they say, look, you know, you don't need us for an NDA. You really don't need us for an NDA. Right. But if we give you the parameters and the guardrails and you just fill out this form, you're going to get your own NDA, you can send it out. You can't edit the legal text, right? But you can edit the variables that we say you can, ed can edit. So there's a certain part of the product. I think the other thing that we hear from in-house legal teams is we are weighed down in low-value work, right? So smart team, um, lots of smart folks in the team, but actually, you know, like 50% of what we do is like pretty robotic manual work, mm -hmm. like, filling out an NDA or negotiating for the millionth time the same point in a, uh, you know, an MSA. And what legal teams are saying is, well, it'd be good to actually get the business to do some of this work, right? Because it's actually better for them, right? They don't have to wait for legal. They just click right. a button and there it is. And in doing so, you basically are streamlining the team. The benefits of that, the legal team, are the obvious ones, right? You save time. But actually, there's some sort of tangential, non-obvious ones as well, which is, you know, think about the, the health and happiness of the people in your, in your team. And, you know, if you're general counsel and you've got some, some legal folks in the team, you've got to keep them interested in doing interesting work, right? And you know, filling out an NDA is not doing that. It's just know, not that, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so I think, I, th I think that's important. And the thing we've really come to understand is the different incentives between these teams, right? So yeah, a sales team wants an NDA yesterday. The legal team wants to make sure that you know, it's not messed up and someone doesn't strike out an important clause. You can use software like Juro to you know, prevent people editing the legal text, but give them what they need and fast. And, and this creates a really nice win-win and better enablement for the business. You know, you were telling somebody else that at the time, it's a couple of years ago now, that you weren't convinced that you had figured out pricing. And you said the goal was just to get incrementally less wrong about pricing. Is that still kind of how you're operating now? Are you getting any better? Do you think... There is a silver bullet how to figure out legal pricing. I think there probably isn't a legal uh, a silver bullet. I mean, on on pricing generally, we switch to a usage based model, and this has worked very well for us. So you know, you get unlimited users, you get as many people as you want in the company, but you you pay basically on banded contract volume. So if you're processing up to 100 a month, up to 500, up to 1,000, that that we think works well because you're you're pricing according to value. 
Price and, and what, what, what led you to that? What were you pricing it at before? We, we previously did seat-based pricing, so per user, which is the right. you know, the most common thing. I think it's a model that really, if I remember correctly, Salesforce pioneered, right? Um, right. And, we, and we did that, and you know, it's, it's fine. It can work. But I think you know, over time, especially SaaS companies are saying, well, if we can correlate pricing a little bit more to value, like real right. value, not just human beings who use it, that's worked great for us. And I think also for legal teams as well, you know, legal teams often have constrained budgets. Uh, so giving them some certainty over that and enabling them to, to make a, a business case, right? Then go to their CFO and say, look, you know, this year we're processing this. This is the kind of price per contract. Uh, and this is how the price looks over time. We try to just be as transparent as we can with it. Now, why is it that you think charging by the contract, the volume is more predictable than, you know, I know I have 15 people in my legal department that are going to be using this, the tool. One of the curious things is the majority of users in Juro are not in legal teams. Um, yeah, so so you have, you know, we have our admin users typically in legal, but we have people in sales, in HR, in uh, procurement, in finance and ops who are, who are using the tool. And I think, you know, especially the companies we work with, often fast-growing companies, I mean, not always, but often. So, you know, companies in the U.S. like, you know, The Real Real and AngelList and sort of tech companies, yeah, they grow headcount really, really fast. And I think that those costs can kind of creep up. We like to have a really simple relationship which says, you know, you get value from adding contracts and processing through workflows. So if you add more, you pay more. If you add less, you pay less, et cetera. And, and that has just worked pretty well for us. I mean, it's certainly not perfect, but um, I think we've certainly iterated that. Richard, I appreciate your time. If people want to join that Juro community or get a hold of you, where do you want them to go? They can head straight to Juro.com, nice and simple, and you can find the community homepage there. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.